You are about to listen to a podcast that is intended for, well, not mature audiences, but certainly adult audiences. So parents, please take a moment to shuffle your kids out of the room or stop listening to it in front of them. We'll give you a moment. Okay, with that out of the way, let's get started with the broadcast. Hello and welcome to Words Between Friends, a podcast where we explore whether it's possible for two old friends to get into heated arguments threatening to tear that very friendship asunder over as mundane a subject as the origins of common English phrases and expressions. I'm your host, Malcolm Flesher, and with me again is my fellow language aficionado and the jam in my jelly roll, the man with the best rap this side of the Wu-Tang Clan, Mr. Kurt Wolfram. So Kurt, are you ready to keep it 100 as we dish on this trifle we call the English language? I am not, sir. Yeah, I didn't think so. <laughs> I never expect you to be. So the way the show usually works is Kurt and I each bring a series of well-known English phrases that we have not yet shared with the other. We then try to parse out the meaning and origin of the other's idiomatic expressions. At least that's how it's supposed to go. Kurt, I believe you won the game of Five Minutes in the Closet Backstage, so you have the honor of launching us on this week's journey of etymological exploration. But first, we've been on something of a hiatus here at Words Between Friends and our affiliated show, Quality Control Purposes, and believe me, the fan base has noticed and expressed their displeasure to me. On hiatus, they say? Why can't you just quit altogether? But do you want to overshare and explain exactly why we've hit the pause button on Words Between Friends for a little while? Well, first, I would like to reflect on how difficult it is for me to remain silent during your intro. Yeah, that's why I mute you. Yeah, because I'm watching a show called Yellowstone starring the inimitable, ageless Kevin Costner. And uh, that show has a prequel to it called 1883. And that 1883 show, I love it. I mean, I really like Yellowstone. It's one of my favorite shows I've ever seen. However, I think that I say that a lot about whatever I've just experienced. Uh huh. <laughs> Because I'll be like, I'll bite into some fries at, at Hardee's and be like, mm, those are the best fries I've had in my life. I like to think and people just, listening are like, so they've been a hiatus because he's been watching a lot of TV? Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's what I've been doing while on hiatus. Ah, uh, right. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, so it's real hard not to interrupt you because you have a set piece there. Yes. Which I call sort of acting. And this 1883 show, which is brilliant, it's about a set amount of time, I guess in 1883, mm. by a bunch of people who are pioneers. Yeah. And they're trying to push their way from Fort Worth, Texas, up to Montana. And it is just brutal. It is brutal. And you're comparing the challenges experienced by pioneers as they struggle to tame the West with your own struggle to keep silent while I'm talking. Oh, it's worse for me. <laughs> it's worse for me. And the reason is, of this show that I really like, there's this actress who's the young protagonist. And she's sort of the narrator. And she does it in an accent like this. That somehow the land made me what I am today. But then one day I realized the land didn't care about me at all. And the rest of the time that she's in the show, she talks more like, hi, how are you? Yeah. You know, like this. <laughs> she actually speaks with an urge. She's like, right, yo, right. what's up? <laughs> yeah. But when she's narrating, the accent is just insufferable. And this poor girl, if she ever hears this broadcast, I thought you did great. You were a great, great actress in it. I've never seen anybody do a bit or a scene where they had an arrow sticking out of them outside of Steve Martin and it, it'd be entertaining. And it was a really great show. It was well worth my time, uh, which is very valuable. And I appreciated it very much. But that accent, it was horrible. And it took you out of the thing. It broke the fifth or the fourth wall or the third wall mm -hmm. or how many walls there are. 
And uh, when you do your bit there in the beginning, it rankles my geese. It sounds extraordinarily phony, and that's how it's supposed to sound. But yeah. thank you. Bunch of BS, what it is. Are you saying it sounds terrible because it sounds like someone doing an intro who isn't very good at doing intros, or just because it sounds like someone doing an intro? Yeah, I mean, the point is, is that you and I have talked on the phone many times, just person to person, mm -hmm. and that's a natural thing. You wait, you interrupt, you don't, whatever, but it's easy to flow. This way, I know what's going to happen. It's like watching the opening credits of a Seinfeld show. Now we've got the Netflix or the computer. You can scrub through the opening credits of Star Trek. You don't yeah. have to sit through it. Mm -hmm. And I know what you're going to say. So can you just in the future just call me after you've gotten that out of your system? You could pre-record it. You know, it, it makes it a little bit more delicious for me knowing that your, your fingernails are like digging into your palm as you're listening. And you're just, yeah. Or actually you're biting your palm like Lenny and Squiggy when they see an attractive woman walk by. Yeah. Just to keep from interrupting me and saying, why are you saying all this? Shut up. Let's get going. <laughs> all right. Two points. Two points. One is now our listener knows that you're in your 80s because you're referencing Laverne and Shirley. So you're super old. And then two is... Uh, I forget, because I'm pretty old, too. Right. Well, I guess the question is, are we going to actually get to our preliminary discussion of why we've been on hiatus, or are we just going to get into the show? Let's just get into the show, but I, I'm going to tell you the second reason uh, I don't remember anymore. Okay. <laughs> Thank God I get to edit all this out. So, <laughs> you don't want to explain. You want to you offer no explanation to the audience. Oh, oh so you want to ask me about my, uh, my diagnosis. Well, that's the reason for our hiatus has been that you have been otherwise preoccupied. Oh, okay. Now I remember the second thing I was going to ask you. So why don't you just record the intro before we talk? You know, it's a really waste of my time. I could be watching 1923, <laughs> which is the prequel to Yellowstone, and yet the sequel to 1883. These people are on a roll. It's actually, it's, it's a prequel, but it's about time travel. <laughs> yeah, and in this one, they do this thing they've been doing sometimes. They'll hide the real big star of the show. They won't advertise it. And you start watching the show and you go, oh my God, that's uh, Nipsey Russell. Wow. And in this case, they didn't put in the credits anywhere that I could find. And I turned on the first show and who's the star but Harrison Ford. What? Yeah, Harrison Ford. Yeah, that's an even bigger name than Nipsey Russell. And I apologize yeah. to the audience, by the way. Nipsey Russell reminds me that I apologize for using such dated references to long time ago TV shows instead of the current hip references to people like Nipsey Russell. <laughs> Oh, you're one of those people that keep score, huh? <laughs> oh, huh? boy, do I ever. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so here's the deal, and this is a public service to our listener, I hope. That's the intent of me sharing this, is that recently I was diagnosed with a big C, and that is something that hits about, I don't know, 7,000 billion Americans a year or whatever it is. The stats on it is, I don't know, 1.9 or 2 million diagnosis, X amount of people die from it. We know that, but those aren't all the people that are diagnosed that year. So it's a skewed thing. You know, they'll say 1.9 million or whatever it is get diagnosed with it. And they're like 600,000 people die. And you go, oh, my God, my odds are terrible there. Mm -hmm. But in reality, that's because people have had it from other years going back. Those of you who know math would know what I'm talking about. So the point of this is that over time, this diagnosis, like a lot of things, going back to 1883 and Yellowstone and such. Sure have gotten a lot better. If, if you were diagnosed with an absence of a tooth or rickets or diphtheria back in the day, that could be fatal. Yeah, or uh, an arrow and, through the stomach. Yeah, an arrow through the stomach was often fatal. Well, it turns out hers was, spoiler alert for those who <laughs> want to see 1883, but not much of one because the narrator tells you she's about to die within the first five minutes of the show in this voice. And then you're like thinking, well, that's good. 
if you're going to keep talking like that. And then you cut to the scene and she's like, oh, no, I'm going to die. <laughs> <laughs> but you find out that the Lakota Native Americans who ostensibly released that arrow, mistakenly, it turns out. I mean, not mistakenly. They meant to shoot her. But it was a case of mistaken identity. They thought she was another white man. <laughs> they were like, enough with the stupid accent. <laughs> yeah, no shit. If they had heard her talk, yeah. they would have shot her. <laughs> yeah, you see the arrow going, you're like, oh, good. The only thing better would have been if it got her lungs. Yeah, they shoot her. Yeah, They shoot her, and then it, you know, she's walking around and shooting other people as one does. And it turns out you can just clip both ends of the arrow and she'd pull it out, she'll be fine and such. But then we find out later that it was their practice, and I imagine this is historically accurate, to dip their arrow shaft in manure so that each penetration would be fatal. That seems excessive. That's, you know, that's just being a dick. <laughs> that's what I said to them. So the point of sharing this news is in the hope that somebody will get pre-screened or not let something go. Because while there were 18 million Americans alive with cancer, they say invasive cancer, but, you know, whatever. I, that, I think they're trying to make a differentiation between skin cancer and... Uh -huh. and Let's not make cancer. judgment calls on cancer. Right. So there's 18 million cancer survivor alive as of last year, whereas in 1971, even though there was a population discrepancy, there was only 3 million. Mm. So we've done a lot, and by I say we, I mean all the other people, because I've done nothing <laughs> to either prevent treat cancer. I mean, I could barely be bothered to show up for my own treatment, mm. let's face it, without a custom Uber or Lyft. Well, it's not like you put it off dealing with it for years and years and years either. So you're really a test case in what, exactly what to do. Yeah, gee, I was waiting how long before that particular commentary would come out. Well, but the important thing is that nobody was encouraging you to deal with it in your life. None of your friends or family or, you know, loved ones. Everyone was yeah. like, yeah, I'm sure it's fine. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay, so Malcolm, I'll talk about him in this accent. That'll be my pet penalty. You know, he brings up a good point. I had a lump in my neck for a long time, also on my breasts and my testicles. But uh, No, this is not true. Those weren't true. But I did. I had a lump that was visible and I could see and I could feel for a long time. And I immediately thought, well, this is different. I shouldn't be there. And then I turned to, hey, I wonder what's on uh, Paramount Network <laughs> and started watching TV. In other words, I just let it go. I would look and, into it, but yeah, but I just signed up for Apple TV. Yeah. So, you know, you understand. Sadly, I guess it doesn't make me look good in the story, but that's not the point. Over the months, and it turns out over a year or more, maybe even two, I watched it and it sort of stayed there for a while and then it grew. And then when it started to really grow from, you know, marble size to pumpkin size, let's say, never got that big, but uh, marble size to uh, quail egg size or something, I became more concerned and then I consulted the medical authority. When it started growing hair and a nose and teeth. When I asked to borrow the car keys, <laughs> I said, wait a sec, I don't want to get to the end here, but I want to do just a, a few more of these stats. We're doing well about cancer. We had a peak in the 20th century, 1991, of 215 deaths per 100,000 humans. And as of 2020, we're down to 143. It's a decline of 33%. And that is impressive in 30 years. So most of that is because of a reduction in smoking and advances in treatment, as well as, wait for it, early detection. Mm. <laughs> So the factors that can reduce your risk in no particular order, but the big ones are no smoking, secondhand smoke exposure, excess body weight, limit your alcohol, diet, physical inactivity, and UV exposure. So those mostly we know, 
This particular cancer was sparked by something called HPV, which oh. is a sexual transmitted disease that is very popular in the United <laughs> States and across the world. Everybody's lining up to get it. It's huge. <laughs> yeah. So it's estimated by the CDC that about 88 million Americans have HPV at one stage or another, and that by the time people are in their 60s, like 90% of them will have had it during their lifetime. So this is something that there's a vaccine that is primarily marketed to young women. However, the early science that I could read and get my hands on did indicate that it has been effective in reducing HPV-related cancers, which are on the rise, generally speaking, mm. and are pretty horrific because they're in uh, sensitive areas often in the anatomy, or in my case, they're in the throat, also pretty sensitive. Yeah. And they're pretty aggressive or, you know, whatever. They're also very treatable, so I'm very thankful for that. But if this were 15 years ago, or God forbid, 1883, mm -hmm. I wouldn't have made it. So what happens is a lot of guys, males, is the X or the Y chromosome, I'm not sure, one of those. <laughs> Uh, it's, it's one of them. <laughs> they end up they they end up not getting it because it's mostly you know it's seen as a girl thing. But it turns out they would be well served in getting it too. And this is all the way up to age forty five people. So you might want to look into getting it. If you do get HPV, a lot of times you'll get some sort of symptom. You could look it up on the Google. It goes away in a couple of years, but the virus itself stays in your body, and that's what's triggering these cancers later on. Well, I just find it ironic. Yeah. that they are concentrating the application of this vaccine on young women. And you seem to have contracted it because you also were concentrating your attention on young women. But you are now on the mend, and you have completed your course of treatment. You are regaining your strength and your energy and your appetite and so on and so forth, although it is a slow and steady process. But you do feel like you have the energy mistakenly probably, to do a podcast with me. Is that correct? I do. And then one last thing before we leave that, I want to thank Malcolm specifically for being so supportive doing this. I chose not to share this information with a tremendous amount of people so that I could put an undue burden on the few that I chose to. So thank you for that. And for those who are thinking about getting this, I recommend against it, generally speaking. <laughs> okay. Uh, the treatment is very difficult. And while I feel very, very grateful to everybody, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention my friend in Florida, Marjorie, my daughter, and my friends here in Maryland, all of whom were, were wonderful. And the other thing is the staff at a company called Kaiser Permanente, who's now on strike. Thank God it's now <laughs> and not before. Yeah. But they were fantastic, Malcolm. I have to tell you, I think that there's a reason that good people uh, that want to help people choose to go to medicine because mm. they were just super great. It was wonderful. And if you're going to get sick from this disease, I recommend coming to Maryland and getting it here. If you want to get cancer, come to Maryland. This is the place to do it. Okay, well, that's yeah. a glowing recommendation. I'm still not entirely clear why you needed my gallbladder. <laughs> that was just because I wanted to get a new controller for my Xbox 360. <laughs> I just, you know, I just like to have something to hold and to worry over, you know. Yeah, it was like a stress ball yeah. kind of thing. But I, it, it was gross, so I got rid of it. I threw it out the window in the car. <laughs> Well, as long as I got to feel like I was participating in the process, that's all that matters to me. My lifespan has been reduced by about 15 years. <laughs> yeah. But how can I stay angry at you? I gave up my gallbladder, and that produces bile. <laughs> so you knew what you were doing, you son of a bitch. I'm uh, sorry. If, if you're looking on guidelines of how to stay angry at me, I've got a few emails for you I can send you. <laughs> you know, it's really not that hard. <laughs>
There are lots of ways. Uh, but you getting cancer is one way to deflect that. So well played. I'll grant you that. Thank you. All right. So what the hell? Let's do a podcast today and we'll see if we can get into it. May, you know, we may not have time to do a full one, but uh, thank you for sharing that. I hope the audience appreciates it. And, you know, when I would talk to him and he was at his lowest points, he said, I, I have to do it for our audience. I have to get through this for our listeners. And I said, you know what? That is so wonderful that you think that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh-huh. Also, I just uh, I want to say that a lot of times when you go through something like this, it changes your outlook you mm. know, in life right. and it reduces your capacity somewhat. And I have to tell you, I appreciate streaming a lot more than I did before. <laughs> Both kinds. <laughs> 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 All right. As a matter of fact, I often will wet myself while watching Netflix. <laughs> and I say, this is living. This is why I got through this. This is <laughs> this is not on NPR. You're going to edit that out, I hope. Never. Okay, so just as a refresher, the way it happens is I will share a common or well-known or moderately well-known English expression with Mr. Wolfram here. And then he has to tell me what it means. And then he has to offer up the derivation. Where did that expression come from? My first expression is actually more of a Britishism. And it's at sixes and sevens. Hmm. At sixes and sevens. First, are you familiar with this expression? Yeah, it's like uh, six of one and uh, 13 of another. N- no. Do you sincerely you don't know what it means to be at sixes and sevens? Oh, I do. I knew. I do. But I like this idea of uh, six of one, half dozen of another. And, yeah. then, and then you're like, it's like five of one or half dozen of another. Just to, just to, I just love to say common sayings wrong all the time just to goad people that are strangers. I mean, I go to the clerk. I'm just like, that's the way the cracker crumbles. And like, I think that's cookie. And I'm like, do you have cookies? Too? Wait, cookies? There's cookies? Yeah. It's just a good way. It makes people feel better because then they feel like they're smarter than you. And people like feeling smarter. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so to be at sixes and sevens, I believe, is to be at odds with, or to be like discombobulated. Yeah, the definition is to be at sixes and sevens, and this is from phrases.org.uk. To be at sixes and sevens is to be at a state of confusion and disorder or of disagreement between parties. So if you're at sixes and sevens with someone else, that means you can't come to an agreement. You're at loggerheads. You're at loggerheads, yes. <laughs> I like a good head on my loggers. But what is the origin? What is the derivation of this phrase? That's the question for you. All right, well, two things. Loggerheads would be a great name for a bar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you got two turtles, like, clanking glasses. Oh, yeah, or even loggerheads. We're going to go with loggerheads. And feel free to steal these, kids. I don't care <laughs> yeah. at this point. Sure. I mean, I'm 55. So the origin of at sixes and sevens, I don't know. I'm going to take just a wild guess here and says it has something to do with gambling, dice, cards, I don't know. When I was thinking about this, I was thinking, if I were on the other end of this one, at six and sevens, I would have guessed that it has to do with the long tradition of men placing a value judgment on women's attractiveness based on a number, and all men think that they're tens, and when you're not really sure whether you want to pursue a woman because she's at sixes and sevens, is it worth it? You know, But that is not true, and that is not the way I think. I don't think about that sort of thing. I would never rate women that way, and this is all going to be deleted. I didn't even know it was possible to rate women. I mean, that's barbaric. <laughs> yeah, you're Rateist. The derivation of this phrase is rather difficult to trace, not least because it has changed in both form and meaning over the nine centuries or so that it has been in use. The phrase was originally to set on six and seven, and is thought to have derived in the 14th century from the game of dice. So you're absolutely right. It did begin with gambling. Very good. You get 10 points. The meaning then was to carelessly risk one's entire fortune. The earliest citation in print is Chaucer's Troilus and Cressida, 1374. Let not this wretched woe thine hurt gnaw, but mainly set the world on six and soon. My middle English may not be perfect there. 
If things had stayed that way, the origin of the phrase would be fairly cut and dried, and there would be little more to say. As we know, though, it is now given as at sixes and sevens, having mutated via at six and seven, and the current meaning refers to a state of confusion, disorder, or disagreement, not one of risk. There's no question of these different versions arising independently. The movement from one to another was gradual, and they overlap each other in time. The first appearance in print of at six and seven is in 1535, and the last citation of on six and seven is 1601. Wait, wait, I'm going to have to interrupt you for a second here. Yes, you are. Now, we've talked before about having a button where we can hit, where I can stop you, and, and this is just because there's a couple jokes that you run over here. And if you just keep going, I'm going to forget them. So the first one is that Chaucer did Troyes and Cressida, which really makes me think Shakespeare, not as smart as I thought, picking that one up for, uh, you know, to, to reboot it, you know, of all of his works. And the second one is how you said while you were editorializing, you said, well, my middle English might not be so good. And I'm like, I don't know how many times I've ever heard someone say that. Probably never. Probably never will again. Yes, your middle English needs some work. <laughs> But my my Italian accent, oh, it's a very good. Uh. <laughs> yeah, right, right. My late Priasona is really good. Place to see. Late place to see. Okay, so the first appearance of At Sixes and Sevens was in 1670 in Letty II Cardinalissimo di Santa Chiesa, translated, or as the subtitle of the work helpfully notes, faithfully Englished by G.H. in 1670, they leave things at sixes and sevens. All right, you know what the Earl of the Count uh, said to the Lady de Winter? <laughs> After their brief assassination, he said, you've been faithfully English. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> but ump bump There are two other stories that contend for the honor of being the source of this phrase, or one of the versions of it at least. One is the biblical text, Job 5.19, from the King James Version. He shall deliver thee in six troubles, yea, in seven there shall no evil touch thee. Other than being old and including the numbers six and seven, this doesn't seem to make a very strong claim. Chaucer would have been familiar with earlier versions of this Bible story in Latin, however. Oh, like you know. I'm going to interrupt you again. I believe it's Job. Job. Okay, thank you. My apologies. The other is an appealing tale. This is the other possibility. The other is an appealing tale. The medieval livery companies that were established in London include the Worshipful Company of Merchant Tailors and the Worshipful Company of Skinners, who are fur traders. The precedence of the companies was set in 1515, but these two companies disputed their positions and a compromise was agreed by which they exchanged sixth and seventh place each year at Easter. Given that the Chaucer quotation is earlier, the livery company story can't be the source of set on six and seven. It is quite possible, though, that having the existing phrase, the coincidence of the dispute being between the sixth and seventh places, caused the migration in meaning. If that is, in fact, what happened, then it could be argued that this is how the present-day phrase originated. There! That is the story of at sixes and sevens. And I like the idea of they're just, like, feverishly arguing between who gets to be in sixth place and who gets to be in seventh place. Now, here's the suggestion that you can edit this part out because it's behind the scenes. Right. But for all the listener out there, this is how the cabbage gets made. The sausage gets made in the cabbage and fed to the pigs. <laughs> what I would do is I'd speak either slower or pause while you're doing these lengthy things because yeah. our conversational strength is interrupting each other all the time in, in order to put in jokes. Uh-huh. Yeah, what happens is you tend to just sort of read and go through it. But just pause between so I can insert a joke there, because other than that, we're going to have to install the mute button. Okay, okay, I don't want to do that. And you know the mute button comes with an automatic shock. Yeah, too, that's right. right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But no one can hear you scream because you're yeah. muted. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. That's great. So I don't really understand. Give me the elevator pitch version of this, because I got lost there in the weeds. So it started, there was an existing expression from Chaucer about dice 
that it was like to set the world on six and seven. And that meant that you are risking it all. Uh, okay. And then it transitioned over time to be at sixes and sevens, and they have various reasons why that might have been to change the meaning to be confused or not in agreement. So that's the basic thing. Right. Because you're like, I rolled a seven and I, and you're like, I rolled a six and you're like, yeah, but I, you know, my entire estate and all my fortune is, is based on this. And, and we have guns. Yes, that's exactly right. Uh, yeah. And uh, you always bring a gun to a dice fight. <laughs> but they're not sure. It's all speculation. You know how it yeah. is. He brought back molars to a wisdom tooth fight. I mean, who does that? <laughs> You know, this idea that people will, throughout history, all the way back in Chaucer's time, which we all know was a fantastic time for writing wonderful Middle English poetry, that some people were forced to memorize at very, very expensive schools. And others went through the text and found all the sly references to Anglo-Saxon yeah. words like cunt. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah <laughs> and, and, and people farting at each other, and uh, it's very ribald. Yeah, it's a good way to spend your parents' money. <laughs> anyway, this idea that all throughout history, there's all these things that we think are new to us, and then you look back and you go, oh, well, they've been gambling for years. They've had prostitution for years. They've had the fentanyl crisis for years. But the idea of people gambling away huge fortune, it's replete in these 18th century and 17th century romantic movies that I watch because, you know, I like a good romance there, mm -hmm. and they don't narrate in a bad accent. But it's like nowadays you'll hear about like Michael Jordan is a prime example. He was worth and is worth a lot of money over a billion dollars, maybe. But he was gambling vast sums of money at one point. And there's a couple things about that is that when you're really wealthy, in order for it to hurt, you've got to gamble a lot. But we can all recognize that it would have been a real problem if Michael's like, oh, now I'll give it all. I got what, 800 million plus you can get my rings and get my jersey, the shoe. Right. You know. But the idea of somebody gambling everything, I guess, has been around for a long time. And it's, it's sad, right? I bet people have lost their estates and their horses and whatnot. Yes, I'm pretty sure that has happened a significant amount. So that is at sixes and sevens. We don't actually say it in the United States much, but it is one that all of our listeners across the pond will appreciate us, you know, a tip of the hat to them and you know, acknowledgement that they're version of the language is not the same as ours. I don't know about all that. I do know that we've played our American football game this morning over there, the Jacksonville Jaguars against the Bills from Buffalo. The Buffalo Bills were playing, in, I believe, in London, an NFL game today. So uh, there you go. They get a little of ours, we get a little of theirs, and Bob's your uncle. And a little shrimp in the barbie for them. <laughs> shrimp on the barbie. <laughs> That's a spicy meatball. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so why don't you go? We'll move on uh, from sixes. We're at sixes and sevens and then some. <laughs> we're at like eights and nines here. And we got the critique in the middle of the show. We're really going strong here. Well, I've been critiquing you in private for years, and it's not taking any off. So I'm like, I guess it's time to do it public. Sure. Yeah. You, I thought losing like, your gallbladder would help, but no. Yeah, yeah, that's good. No, but I remember my, my time in London uh, fondly there, going to like the drunken fat guy or whatever. But the pubs, the pub names and, and all that stuff, and you get to drive on the other side of the road, and, and you get to goose the people standing guard there with the big hat. Sure. It's a good time. Everybody <laughs> should go. The drunken frog, I think it was. All right. Skin of your teeth. That's the phrase. What do you know about skin of your teeth? Well, obviously, to do something by the skin of your teeth means to barely succeed, to barely get by, to just get in under the wire, or to just barely achieve it. So your contention is that skin of your teeth is to barely get by? To, uh, to barely succeed at something 
Okay, I'm going to attain that a little bit on a certain sense. It's more, in this case, it's more about escaping from something. By the skin of your teeth, you just escape from this peril. Ah. Uh, right? Okay. Like how I, by the skin of my teeth, was able to get out of fourth grade. Just by the skin of my teeth. Uh-huh. But, you know, yours is good, but the part of it that a lot of people know, just as the meaning, is, yeah, I escaped that by the skin of my teeth. Right. You know, Got it's it. usually peril. Yes. Okay, so what's your guess on the, uh, the origin? Ah, uh, the origin of the skin of your teeth. <laughs> Let me think about that. What could the origin of the skin of my teeth be? Obviously, it's something to do with condoms. So to get by, by on the skin of your teeth is to barely escape. And what escaping has to do with one's teeth, and that there would be skin on one's teeth, is what I'm struggling with. As an aside, what's always bothered me, too, is a fine-tooth comb. Mm -hmm. And that's because I didn't understand they were saying fine-tooth comb. I thought it had something to do with teeth. And I was like... Why would you have fine teeth in your comb? Yeah. I don't want to get, you know, <laughs> you know, like human teeth. That's disgusting. Maybe they used to just do combs with teeth. Well, well there's a song, Islands in the Stream, yeah. where he says, I set out to find you with a fine tooth comb. And yeah. I found that amusing because the reason, you know why you use a fine tooth comb? To get out nits, maybe. Or yes, that's light. exactly right. So Islands in the Stream, that is what we are. His love for her, he's comparing her to an invasive <laughs> arachnid. <laughs> Quite possibly venereal disease, but in the best possible way. So I set out to find you just the way I, I look for you, the way I look for lice. <laughs> it sounds better when you just mention the fine tooth comb. Well, I mean, you know, kind of in the same place and with the same scrutiny. Yeah, no worries. Yeah, I wound up with lice. <laughs> I wound up with pubic lice, so I guess I'm glad I held on to that comb. So the skin of your teeth, it literally does have to do with escaping. And it has to do with when you're in prison, traditionally, in Middle Ages and for many, many centuries. Hygiene, not number one on anybody's priority list. And unlike today, they were not issued toothbrushes, speaking of fine-tooth combs. So you had a tremendous buildup of material, matter, on your teeth that you could scrape off with your fingernail if you wanted to, but eventually your fingernails are so dirty. Why bother? You know what? But there was an instance where there was a prisoner who did manage to escape, and the reason he was able to escape this particular plan it involved somehow biting something that left residue from the plaque and the buildup on his teeth, and it actually helped him escape. The details escape me, but there was something to the story where he was able to escape prison because he had so much buildup of material and filth on his teeth, and they would refer to it as tooth skin. That was a common phrase back then for what we call plaque today, or tartar and the like, all the various things that build up on teeth. And so his escape, they realized in retrospect afterwards that he would not have been been able to do it if he did not have whatever he was biting into if he had not had that thick layer of buildup maybe it was a guard who tried to grab him by the tooth but slipped off and just was left holding some plaque in his hands and he's like oh he got away and he's like you know oh you know sort of like someone running away you grab an article of clothing and it tears away but in this case it was the skin of his teeth and he managed to escape and ever after we have used the expression to escape by the skin of your teeth. And credit to him, because if he had engaged in better oral hygiene, he would have rotted away in prison for much, much longer. Whereas in this case, it's just his teeth that were rotting while he was a free man. So uh, well-founded, I suppose, and entirely preposterous <laughs> on all levels. <laughs> I'm trying to think of a prison movie that involves somebody doing this, and I can't think of one that I would want to watch. Thank God. Okay, so if I'm wrong... If, if, huh? If mine is the minority theory, 
Would you like to gamble your entire fortune on this, six or seven? You saying I'm at sixes and sevens about this? All right, let's hear it. What's the truth story about uh, skin of our teeth, Mr. Antrobus? All right. Boy, you were so close. Well, I'll give you a hint. It's all the way back thousands of years ago. This one is one of the older derivations of any of the words or phrases that I've looked up. And it's from that book that you referenced earlier, the Bibble. Mm. It's in the Bibble. Okay. And in the King James Version of the Bible, in the book of Job... It says, here's the quote, my bone cleaveth to my skin and to my flesh, and I am escaped with the skin of my teeth. And it can be resolved as follows. The first phrase uses Hebrew or in its usual sense of skin. Therefore, the correct reading is, my skin and flesh cling to my bones, and I am left with only my gums. Oh, giving, so it refers to us, the gums. Yeah, giving us a stark description of the advanced stage of Job's disease. Yeah, he seems to have gotten kind of a raw deal, Job, in the Bible. Yeah, I think I believe it's also the origin of the phrase, if it's not one thing, it's another. One thing after another. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> he was like, this Murphy's Law is really good. <laughs> Listen, God, not I'm not saying nothing, and yet, you know, still... <laughs> Yeah, see, the book of Job is the origin of the skin of our teeth. If it's not one thing, it's another. Uh, again with this? <laughs> Jeez. Uh, you've got to be kidding me. Yeah, what's a guy got to do? <laughs> what's, a, what's a guy got to do to get a dry shirt in this town? <laughs> yeah, where does the expression, oh, come on, come from? <laughs> yeah, <all right. laughs> it's the book of Job. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, also, what is it? Uh, same day, different shit. What is that expression? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. Right. Yeah. Same shit, different day. That's it. it comes from the same shit, different <laughs> day is from the Book of Job. Uh, so I, of course, because the skin of one's teeth, that makes no sense to skin and teeth. There's no skin on teeth. And that's what I was grappling with. And it would make sense that it just is a mistranslation of gums. It's really, the whole book of Job is a warning to take good care of your gums because of the concern about gingivitis. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's for sure. And, you know, the book of Job keeps giving because when I was in high school, it's a school that's higher than the others, it's a high school. And uh, You certainly took that to heart. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, for those of you who don't know Malcolm, he likes to bring up things that may or may not have occurred in something that he thinks is the past that may or may not have occurred with me and that it could be libelous or slanderous or actionable, yeah. actionable, uh -huh. surely in a court of law. Anyway, at this high school that I attended for some time, they had something called assemblies where you were encouraged to watch your fellow students put on a play. And they put on a play about the book of Job. And I have to tell you, I've seen two plays in my time here on this planet in which each play I thought to myself, my God, will this ever end? Mm. And how long is intermission so I can slip out? Mm -hmm. And boy, I hope my date doesn't make me come back after intermission. Right. In this case, it was something about Job and it was the devil and God arguing. And I won't name the kid, but one of the kids played the devil and the other kid played Job. Job was sort of there, but it was really devil and God were the main characters here. And the guy who played the devil was in my math class. And one day somebody in the class was talking about our future because the math teacher was uh, one of these that just let you talk about anything because we were a bunch of dullards and he knew we, we had no future in math. So this kid out of nowhere goes, well, I'm not worried about math, sir, you know, to the teacher, because I'm going to be an actor. I'm going to acting school. 
and I have no need of this mathematic. And he said it in that dramatic way. And I remember <laughs> thinking to myself, uh, what a tool. But not as much as this play of the devil and God going after each other for what seemed like 80 years. Yeah, well, today they call him Harrison Ford, so a joke's on you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, <laughs> other one, the, the other one, if you need to know, was at the Old Vic in London, where uh -huh. I was at the Spotted Dick, the pub, the Spotted Dick there. And in London, they have a theater called the Old Vic, and it's been around for like dozens of years there by the River Thames. And we watched uh, Waiting for Godot. Oh, yeah, Waiting for Godot is a lengthy play. Oof. My daughter Oof. was in Waiting for Godot. And Ugh. I sat through it. She did a good job, but boy, oh boy, that's a lot of lines to memorize. And spoiler alert, he doesn't show. <laughs> yeah. yeah, waiting for Godot. If your kid gets in waiting for Godot, trust me, this is the athletic equivalent of them being in a swim meet. Don't go. Just tell them you've got sciatica. So I believe the title of that play is JB, the one about Job. I don't think I bothered to watch it. But what I find amusing about this whole conversation is that you were in a play. We were both actually in a play in high school. Do you remember, not Witness for the Prosecution, which we were both in, but do you remember the other play that you and I were both in, in high school? Yes, yes, and it was one of the other cultural references to the phrase, skin of my teeth, called Skin of Our Teeth by <laughs> Thornton Wilder. That's right, and <laughs> you just didn't bring it up, even though we were talking about that very phrase. What is well, going on? Well, I'm going to give you a quiz here. It's a two-part quiz. I'm going to name the albums that have cultural references to the phrase, skin of my teeth, and you tell me if you know who the band is. Oof. So the 1992 album Countdown to Extinction was a, a song on this album called Skin of My Teeth. Who is the band? The song is called Skin of My Teeth? Yep. And it was a 1992 album called Countdown to Extinction? Yep, referring to the theme that, well, I won't say what the song's about. All People right. can look it up. Yeah, that was the Fat Boys. That was Megadeth. Megadeth, okay. I get those two bands confused a lot. Yeah, and then we've got a song from the album Skin of My Teeth. Wait, what do you have to guess? Oh, you have to guess the, the artist. <laughs> hey, I was going to give you like password. I was going to give you the answer. There. <laughs> the song from the album Holy, and I don't know how to pronounce this. I'm going to do my best. Fivik. Fivik. F-V-C-K. Holy, uh-huh. The, the album name is Holy Fivik. Uh-huh. F-V-C-K. Who's the artist there? 2022 album. The song is Skin of My Teeth. 2022 album called Holy... Fivik. 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 The uh is silent. <laughs> yeah, that is country star Leanne Rhymes. That's absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, you know, these are set pieces I have, too, so you can interrupt me. It's Demi Lovato. Okay. There you go. Good for her. And in that play, what was the one line I had? Mr. Antrobus. Mr. Yeah. Antrobus. No, no, no. I'm sorry you got it wrong. It was er uh Mr. Antrobus. <laughs> All right. Do you remember my one line? Uh, was it to like shoot me in the back or hit me or something? <laughs> it was, oh, God, this play is deaf. I got to get out of here. <laughs> no, it was a lengthy quote from Spinoza that I said as I walked across the stage. Yours was much more riveting. <laughs> that play hinged on us, you and me both, <laughs> yeah. for sure. Juicy parts, you know, when you get your lines on a three by five <laughs> note card with room to spare. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Hank Hackett recognized our acting chops that were so substantial that he gave us both parts that had one line in it. All right, so that's Skin of Our Teeth. Let's move on because we're never, ever going to finish this this is going to be like the 8,000 hour podcast then moving on with baker's dozen what is a baker's dozen where does it come from what do you know tell me now <laughs> well it's like seven of one and half dozen of the other <laughs> it's like six of one and uh 
<laughs> I just run out of steam. I don't even have the energy to say the other part. Yeah. Or if something is just really, really much, much, much better, it's like six of one. <laughs> it's just far superior. Ah, oh, yeah, that's good stuff. Okay. Baker's dozen. What is a baker's dozen? So a baker's dozen, essentially, when you get an extra corn muffin or a blueberry muffin or, God, I really want a muffin right now, a chocolate chip muffin, blueberry muffin. It is a number. How many is a baker's 13, dozen? 13. I believe it's 13. The unlucky 13, yeah. 13 is correct. A baker's dozen is 13. Right. That is the answer we were looking for, and you accuse me of being long-winded. I believe I accused, and you've been convicted. <laughs> but where does the term a baker's dozen come from? And I'll give you a hint. It has nothing to do with bakers and nothing to do with numbers. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. That's not I did. Right. No, I actually know this one, okay. unfortunately, for mm -hmm. you. And I, I know we always talk about this. If somebody guesses it, it's disappointing to the person who brought it. But, you know, suck it up. You're not surviving a near-death experience like some of us. <laughs> Are you referring to our listeners? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so moving on, and those of you who like suspense, I don't have the all clear yet. I have to go back for a uh, PET scan and a CAT scan, which I found out for the first round, they don't want you bringing your pet. I love the idea of you walking in there with a cat carrier. <laughs> <laughs> We're here. Should I just drop him off? <laughs> I think I misunderstood yet again. He's wearing a mask. I don't know what the problem is here. He's wearing a mask. <laughs> Do you know what it took me to rent this cat? <laughs> Tell me whatever the problem is and let me break it to him, though. <laughs> Whiskers, we're going to have to let you go. <laughs> Whiskers, I'm sorry. The prognosis is not good. <laughs> oh, oh, my God. For those of you who didn't hear our earlier shows, at one point Malcolm had a brilliant one where he was like talking about how you have to break up with your dog. Just be like the video that we were just talking about, like, oh, I'm sorry, Rover. It's not working out. You need to hit the bricks. <laughs> we gave it our best shot. You know what? We fought for this, but it just yeah. it's just not and working. And then of out. course those of us who remember old yeller, it's the you know the thing where you throw the rocks and get out of here, get Go on now, get yeah. <laughs> That's how all my breakups have been. The women are like, get out. Get out. I'm like, maybe no, we need to try it. like throwing rocks at me. Go on, I said get get, get. Get out of here. Tears streaming down her face. Get. Yeah. yeah. You're no good to me. Anyway. We don't want to hear no more. <laughs> it's the best way. Oh, my goodness. Oof. And if you haven't seen it, you people have kids or whatever, watch Old Yeller. That's if you want to make your kids real unhappy. <laughs> Old Yeller, where the red fern grows is another good one. Showa. Showa. Showa yeah. And then, if I may make a callback, the Fat Boys Disorderlies, <laughs> which, uh, you know, Ralph Bellamy in perhaps his greatest role. Oh, <laughs> all right, we're going to have to head all this out because I'm going to lose it here. Oh, my gosh. That's hilarious. The Fat Boys. Oh, my God. I mean, somebody in Hollywood is like, we got to put these guys in a movie. Yeah. You know what? That's actually my brush with fame. I came this close to meeting Mike Tyson and another boxer, but I actually was in the same Pizza Hut with the fat boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, were, were they working there? <laughs> and I survived to tell the tale. <laughs> I can totally see that you go into the, hey, aren't you like fat boys? Like, yeah, yeah, we are. I'm like, wow, that's great. Listen, I want a large cheese. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't want you touching it. Yeah.
Yeah, I just love the idea that I survived the encounter, you know, because of the fat boys. Sure. And luckily, their pizza came. But this isn't back in the 80s, uh, people don't know. But the fat boys, they were there. I was in Virginia. There were the fat boys. And you could tell because, A, <laughs> they were fat. Uh-huh. B, they were all wearing the balloon clothes with the real rayon and the bright colors. They uh-huh. looked like they were all like sort of walking parachutes with the beanies, like rerun yeah. from what's happening. Very brightly colored there. They didn't have an entourage, though. They took up a whole booth, trust me. They were an entourage unto themselves. Oof, my goodness. Okay, so I know this one. Speaking of movies and callbacks and stuff, Baker's Dozen comes from the uh, movie Escape from Navarone or something like that, or The Dirty Dozen. Anyway, it stars the inimitable George Papard. Now, you say it's not about Baker's, but he breaks out a cadre of sympathizers and soldiers and double agents from an Italian prison during World War II with a very clever plot that uses biscuits and muffins as grenades. Mm. And he plants them around the prison, and he breaks them out. But at the end, they're about to get caught by a bunch of the Nazis there that were visiting from Germany to Italy (laughs) to help them out. But they get through it because they all pretend they're chefs, and they're very angry, very angry chefs. The only type you see today is a chef who's cursing at the other people about how horrible their restaurants are. <laughs> Even the Nazis were cowed by this, and they're like, oh, let's let them go. They seem like they should be in charge. Yeah, they were like, oh, we thought we were Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I see the promos for these shows, and they're like, the asshole chef, tie at nine on, you know, whatever. It's just, it's just this guy just cursing at people. This place is horrible. I wouldn't feed a rat here. And you're like, who, what? You call that a reduction? <laughs> yeah. And I literally was saying to myself, there's nobody around. And I'm saying to myself, A, who would make this show? B, who would produce it? Who would star in it? Who would watch it? What is going on here? It's probably the same people who did Disorderly starring the Fat Boys. But uh, you call that compote? More like compost. Oh, folks, I'm here all week. No, I just want to say, if people want people to rant and insult them, I've got some emails for you. You can call these folks. (laughs) Did you finish? I'm not sure I got to the end of that. No, no, no. I just want to say that I don't get this idea of shows where they just yell at you. Yes. They yell at the poor people. Is there a big audience for this? Apparently there is. Uh, That I don't have an answer for. All right. right. Did you complete, did you explain how it was Baker's Dozen? I'm not. Yeah, but I I just wanted to know your take on these types of shows. Oh, I don't care for them and I do not understand their appeal. Mm -hmm. But on some level, you have to understand the passion of, like, it's Gordon Ramsay is like the quintessential example. Yeah, the guy with the hair. No, that's Guy Oh, uh, okay. Whatever. So this is a genre, is what you're saying. Yeah, but I don't think if Guy Fieri yells at people, but Gordon Ramsay's the one. He's well-known. He's an English guy, and he's known for screaming at people in restaurants and the other cooks or whatever. <laughs> Here's the thing. I was well-known for that, too. I got arrested several times, <laughs> Sure. So I, don't, I didn't get a hit TV show out of it. But it is, it's understandable why he gets so angry, because imagine the consequences if someone gets undercooked asparagus. So you're close. The movie was called Baker's <laughs> Dozen, and Baker was the George Papard character, and he puts together a ragtag bunch of 12... Wait, wait, wait. Are you serious? People, his soldiers in World War II, and they're going to attack. But the film was so low budget, they didn't have anybody who noticed that there were actually 13 of them. And Baker's Dozen came to be known as 13 as a joke. No, no, that's not true at all. Of course not. Oh, okay. But I wouldn't put it past Hollywood to make a movie called Baker's Dozen about a guy named Baker who puts together a team of 12 people. All right, so Baker's Dozen. It is widely believed that this phrase originated from the practice of medieval English bakers giving an extra loaf when selling a dozen in order to avoid being penalized for selling short weight. Pause. 
This is an attractive story, and unlike many of the in the days of old England they used to say stories, it appears to be true. This is also from phrases.org.uk, by the way. Wait, wait, now you're going to say pause in between so I can insert a joke? No, I'm not. In some societies, bakers had poor reputations for shorting customers. Imagine the amount of bread they were supposed to give. In Babylon, shortchanging bread led to someone's hand being chopped off. In ancient Egypt, shortchanging bread led to someone's ear being nailed to the bakery. Wait, wait. And I understand people in cultures where they chop things off, generally speaking, yeah. wouldn't be considered a long-sighted. What's the opposite of short-sighted? It's not long-sighted. Yeah. But they're not really thinking things through. Mm -hmm. And here's the thing. If I live in a village where there's a baker and he shortchanged me one day, it seems like it's a bad idea to, if I'm going to cut something off him, maybe a foot? So he's got to limp around, but maybe not one of his hands that he needs yeah. to use for, I don't know, baking? Yeah, his nose maybe. It doesn't say how they know that. It says in ancient Egypt, shortchanging bread led to someone's ear being nailed to the bakery. Oh. And I'm like, is there like a hieroglyph that depicts this? Luckily for all of us in the Middle East, crime and punishment and, and the punishment has really changed a lot. Yeah, things have settled down. It's peaceful. But I'm imagining there's like some sort of story that's told in a hieroglyphs about some baker who shortchanged somebody. And then there's the image of his ear being nailed to a wall. And somebody had to figure out what that is. Maybe they figured it out wrong, but... The, <laughs> but somebody went to the trouble of banging it out into the hieroglyphs, I suppose, because they did not have the written language like we do today. The practice of adding an extra loaf originated several centuries before the phrase. England has a long history of regulation of trade. Bakers were regulated by a trade guild called the Worshipful Company of Bakers, which dates back to at least the reign of Henry II, which is 1154 to 1189. I don't know where they came in in the rankings, the furriers and the tailors, sixes, sevens, so on and so forth. Wait, wait, wait. What was it? The Worshipful what? The Worshipful Company of Bakers. Okay. I thought you were going to say it was a guild, because every time I hear guilds, I think of the lollipop. It was. It was a trade guild. But the Lollipop Guild was above. The, they were number one, of course. Worshipful Company of Bakers, like three or four. And then the tailors and the furriers at six and sevens. At sixes and sevens. The law that caused bakers to be so wary, so this is why they're adding an extra loaf, was the Assize of Bread and Ale. In 1266, Henry III revived an ancient... I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Did you say <laughs> Assize? Assize, yes. So wait, let me just get a mental picture of this, of what the Assize of Bread and Ale is. So I go into the baker and I'm like... Uh, what would you like today? Uh, give me two of the muffins there. I really like some chocolate muffins. I just got some therapy for this thing today. Uh, put a fire near my neck. So I don't really taste them very well. And uh, let me get an ass size of beer and bread. No, they're like, I think I'd like some bread. How much would you like? Oh, an ass size. <laughs> <laughs> well, whose ass are we talking about? King Henry VIII? <laughs> yeah, I was just going to get a breast size, but I've got company coming over. Yes, give me the ass size. So I like this. In 1266, Henry III revived an ancient statute that regulated the price of bread according to the price of wheat. And I like the idea that Henry apparently didn't realize he was already living in ancient times. <laughs> <laughs> this is what gets me the other day. I was thinking about all the laws we have in, in our country. It's 2023, I'm told. And we've been making laws for almost 250 years in this little experiment. And ours is based off of English common law that goes way back to the Magna Carta and before that. I mean, that's like 700 years. I would think that we would have enough laws by now. We've been making them for centuries. No, we got to revive ancient ones even. I'll take an ass size of exception to that. <laughs> I've had an ass size of you. <laughs> <laughs> so he revived this ancient law, regulated the price of bread according to the price of wheat. Bakers or brewers who gave short measure could be fined, pilloried, or flogged. When's the last time you've been pilloried? <laughs> well, I think people don't know that the stocks 
is both the hands and the feet, uh -huh. and the pillory is the one that's just the hands and head. I think that's, so people, the pillory is what, I think that's correct. Okay, bakers or brewers who gave short measure could be fined, pilloried, or flogged, as in 1477 when the Chronicle of London reported that a baker called John Mundu was shrived, meaning forced to admit his guilt, upon the pillory for selling bread that was underweight. Unbelievable. Can you imagine? Anybody with the name John is not to be uh, not, not to be, be trusted. Assizes <laughs> reportedly made life more difficult for bakers. <laughs> it's not just because they had to get the size, but also the shape. They had to get the shape right. Sure, also. I think it's been true for centuries that ass sizes have made it more difficult for bakers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. bakers are responsible <laughs> for my ass size. They had to sell by the pound, and many bakers did not own scales, so they had no idea whether they were shortchanging customers or not on some days. As a result, bakers decided it was better to throw in more bread than suffer extremely embarrassing punishments. You know, it's so embarrassing when you get your hand cut off or your ear nailed to the wall. Oh my gosh, that's so embarrassing. Isn't that just like the government to establish a regulation and then nobody has the scales to do it? Oh my goodness. Well, they have the scales. <laughs> the government comes in with their own scales and they're like, oh, sorry, into the pillory for you. So they decided to put in some extra bread for good measure. As you can imagine, being arrested or publicly whipped as a baker was not good for business, nor was getting your hand cut off, I assume. <laughs> Or having your ear nailed to a wall. What about that thing? Did they do this in California where they put a grade, like from A to F or something, on the outside so you can see it when you're walking into a restaurant yeah. based on their cleanliness? Mm -hmm. I don't know how would you rate a restaurant or a, a bakery that had an ear nailed to the wall, but probably not good. <laughs> and the baker's dozen was a wise adaptation for bakers to avoid such a punishment. So that's the practice. What about the phrase? That goes back to at least 1599, as in this odd quotation from John Cook's to quote. Mine's a baker's dozen, Master Bubble. Tell your money. <laughs> that's the end of it. And that's a baker's dozen. All I can think of now is the next phrase I have to uh, research is aside, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> How is that spelled? What is the spelling of that? Well, the Department of Assize is their weights and measures. I know you didn't ask this, but... I, yeah, thank you. Thank you for clarifying that, as usual. I know, I know, I know. Jesus. Because everything you said was requested. Uh, this whole episode, everything that you... No, no, no. Don't, don't use that kind of logic. That's what all my exes says. Let's just talk about you. Go on, now get. Get you. <laughs> So, so this is how they handle this kind of thing in suits. They're like, this conversation isn't about me. It's about you. Back and forth. Back and it's, forth. It's spelled like it sounds. A-S-S-I-Z-E. Uh -huh. That's great. Well, now I know my new career. I've always been like, should I be a school bus driver? Should I be a neurosurgeon? Maybe I'll be a pilot, a police officer. But obviously... <laughs> He doesn't know his ass size from a hole in the ground. That's what I say. So, yeah, uh, I, I can just see myself giving a card at the next cocktail party I prefer. And what is it you do? Well, I used to uh, count and catalog mushrooms for a uh, magical fairy blog that my daughter does. But now I'm a professional ass sizer. <laughs> Would you mind uh, turning around for me? <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry, I'm licensed by the state. <laughs> I'm fully bonded. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also a notary public. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, we got to let these people go. This is ridiculous. Wait, I travel everywhere with one of those tape measures that tailors have. Sure. You know, I whip it out. And I, yeah. Oh, let me let me just take a measurement here. It's a living. <laughs> Somebody's got to do it. <laughs> no, no, ma'am. It's all right. I'm a professional. <laughs> just take a minute. And then the scene cuts to me and the pillory is being like, ah, once again. Yep. Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> okay, well, thank you for sticking with us all the way through part one. 
of this episode of the Words Between Friends podcast. If you found the show tolerable, you're practically guaranteed to be able to sit through the other podcast, Kurt and I do, Quality Control Purposes, in which we share provocative letters written to advice columnists and then provide our own pointed suggestions while also rating the advice offered up by the professionals. Available wherever you enjoy quality podcast content. For now, however, we must close the weighty, dust-covered tome on this week's Words Between Friends, but we leave you, as always, with our solemn pledge that next time we promise to do better. Hey, thanks for listening. But before you go, if you enjoyed this podcast, go ahead and leave us a five-star rating and a glowing review. Or, if you didn't enjoy it, well, give us five stars and a glowing review anyway. Why should you be the only one who suffers? And also, be sure to check out the other podcast Kurt and I do, Quality Control Purposes, where we offer our critiques of professional advice columnists' responses to letter writers while barely concealing our borderline contempt for one another.